uh, uh, hi there. If you're looking for the less people, well, uh, they, uh, they finished their work and moved on. Never mind all the empty space. We're, uh, we're doing some remodeling. I can see by the look on your face that you expected more. Well, we had more. In fact, we had a lot more. We had offices for management over there and there, and we installed that balcony above for managers to watch the, the other managers. Things were incredibly efficient here. We had a lot of people, a lot of very important people. It was a very grand arrangement. The org chart was such a thing of beauty. It had all of these wonderful links of reporting and sub-departments and sub-departments for sub-departments. Oh, so wonderful. It told a story of managers very busy with small, agile teams. You wouldn't believe the dependencies we had. They were just mighty and awesome. People would come from far and wide just for a chance to work with such dependencies and the coordinators needed for such dependencies and the managers to manage the coordinators. And of the escalations, oh, you have never seen such escalations and the, the amount of effort that was needed to, to handle the mobs of angry managers with dependencies who were always escalating. Oh, it was a system of just beauty. There were so many meeting rooms needed for those escalation meetings and there weren't enough and people would just suffer with them. So we made plans, yes, plans to add a whole new wing. A whole new wing just to have meetings about escalations and dependencies. It was just gonna be grand. And the architecture drawings were just immense, a cathedral to, 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 uh, it's all gone now. We brought in the less consultant. And, well, she made us reform our teams. And you know, that totally trashed our plan expansion. The dependencies and escalations were, well, they were less. So then the management and coordinators were, well, less. Management loved that consultant, now less. But the stockholders were happier. And the teams, well, you know, they seemed like a bunch of angry crybabies, but they became happy when their efforts were connected to products purchased by customers. Well, you know, who would have thought? This is the Agile Thoughts Podcast, and I'm Lance Kind. We catch up with Craig Larman at Beyond Agile, a meetup in Seattle. In this episode, Craig attempts to break down the fantasies that happen when people wish for organizational change and yet don't commit to doing it. dissolve them. <laughs> so uh, you can't. And in fact, uh, as I shared before, I think the worldwide market for scrum and adaptiveness and agility is almost zero. I think one of the things that happens when you get more experienced is that you start filtering fast, recognizing that in the entire city of Seattle, there might be like three or four product groups that are actually serious about deep change. Uh, and so too around the world. And so you just start filtering fast so you don't waste your time. You know, life is short. 
who wants to work with really what are fake change organizations. Secondly, or what I call change theater. Um, so most change, it seems to me, is just change theater, number one. Number two, you can't convince anybody, or if you can, let me know how. After 40 years, I, I, it's my observation that you can't. Ken Schwaber, the creator of Scrum, has come to the same conclusion as well. You can't. And uh, Dr. Cotter at Harvard actually nailed it quite well, uh, which is that he is a specialist in change. You might be familiar with his name, Dr. Cotter at Harvard Business School. And one of the key things that he's identified is that an organization for actual true deep change needs uh, some reason of urgency. And uh, there needs to be an existential crisis, typically, or so on. And so the main problem, the reason why there's just change theater everywhere, is that there's just too much money. Most, almost every company I meet has too much money. They say they don't, but when you go and try to do real change and you can see the levels of dysfunction and waste and gaming that goes on, clearly they have too much money. <laughs> um, so there's a small number of product groups and companies in the world at any one time that are in existential crisis uh, or see an extraordinary new opportunity, self-driving car, uh, and those are usually the situations in which you'll have an opportunity to actually do deep change. And, and, and you've developed skills to see that. Yeah, and it's not, this it's not that difficult. Um, for example, it's a complete waste of time to work in any company that's in financial services, banking, insurance, etc. because they just, per definition, have too much money. Oh, by the way, it is temporary. Um, fact, because I'm working very closely in the self-driving car space these years, so I kind of have a better feel for it, the entire auto insurance industry is going to collapse. Um, and that's going to start happening in around five years, because self-driving cars are so safe that the uh, market for insurance is essentially going to dry up. There's going to be a worldwide very small and uh, low premium market uh, for auto insurance. So if you could short the auto insurance industry, that would be a good thing to do. Um, but the, you know, building on that point, it's going to come a time in around, I've already uh, worked with a senior management at one uh, auto insurance company, AAA, uh, that recognizes that they're going to be in an existential crisis. But I haven't met too many auto insurance executives yet, but you can predict that somewhere between three and five years, seniors at auto insurance companies are going to go, oh, fuck. Yes. And that's when you might actually be able to introduce real change. Mm -hmm. Coming back to your question of how you, can you filter, it ain't that difficult. Mm -hmm. They should have no money or be facing a serious crisis or have some other sense of urgency, like an extraordinary opportunity that they can see that no one else is seeing and not be too big to fail? Uh, not be too big to fail. Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by like that because I, I've seen large groups succeed with deep change. Yeah. Well, the companies are small enough that they will fail. They're not financial services. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. In other words, uh, sometimes like a kind of a joke in the insurance business is uh, for, most, for most problems, it's an act of God, which means you don't get compensated unless it's an act of Wall Street. <laughs> So this has been a fairly depressing presentation you've made. <laughs> I am interested, however, in learning. Let it out, man. <laughs> learning how I have a mortgage, I have a family to support. I would like to go home and feel proud about what I do for a living. Right. How could a person like me make a move in the right direction? So I'm one of the people at the bottom of this. So chart. I, I normally, so as I said, I try to make most of my money as a C++ developer. 
uh, not uh, doing this. And um, many of you might know my background with my books on object-oriented analysis and science. I'm a computer scientist. I try to make my living actually making code and hardware software. I recommend that 99% of all agile coaches uh, just go and become computer scientists or doctors or engineers, get a day job and do uh, real work. And then um, the small number that are left, I recommend to be financially independent <laughs> so that when they're speaking, they can do so from a real place of uh, honest truth without having to shade in order to keep a job. And if that happened, uh, there'd be a lot less of this fake change and I think a lot less of the dysfunction that arises from it. Okay, kind of. I mean, what about all these, the, the greatest companies out here are following these frameworks. I mean, what's the argument against that? They were just good ideas anyway? I, I don't have any argument against okay. it. I kind of miss your point. Okay. I, I, I think I missed the point then on it. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, my question, or my point was about yep. agile coaches, most of which are just essentially enabling fake change, be far better for the world. And it's really not just agile coaches, it's management consultants, that's the generalization. So that if 99.9% .9 of all management consultants, of which agile coaches fall under, went back to a day job, uh, the world would be a much better place. <laughs> inspirational and <laughs> <laughs> I'm a defanticist. <laughs> but um, okay, so here in the Seattle area we have large wireless operators, not to be named. Mm -hmm. It might be considered one end of the change acceptance spectrum, the structure spectrum. Yeah, they have too much money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a couple of examples like uh, Valve and Cumulo. Valve on the very far end, they've got they've really gotten away with structure. Mm -hmm. They don't have any. So, like, if you're going to well, suggest... Well, no, they, they do have structures, okay. uh, but they're not the traditional They're not traditional. Yeah. So, your model of, you know, if we're going to go examine the company to learn, like, how it, this actually works, would mm -hmm. that be an example? Are there other suggestions? Can you give us at least some shining lights here in the darkness? Well, uh, the most recent one is the BMW self-driving car. Um, it, someone told me that just a couple of days ago on LinkedIn, people started to share videos uh, that explain what we're doing there in Munich. Wow. Uh, okay. So, that would be a place to look. But if you want to understand the structure of less, you start sure. with the third yeah. book. Um, the basic atomic unit is a feature team, mm -hmm. uh, which is a team which is completely cross-component, full stack, front to back, as well as cross-functional. That's the core structural element of less. You have now these agile teams, right, or developers, however you want to call it. And then you have management. And there is a wall between them. There is tremendous friction happening, as you mentioned, in the organizational design. Yeah. How you start working that conflict and friction between those? Because one wants to be agile. The other one wants to control. The biggest question is always when you have a large project that you cannot break it in chunks. Mm. Now you have issues with budgets, executive reporting, and right. all that mess. That, I understand the question. Those problems only exist if it's being done bottom-up. If you start above all of the middle managers, and then, as with all less adoptions, virtually all manager positions are eliminated before a less adoption, the problem goes away. So most young change agents try to approach the problem unskillfully, which is to somehow 
talk with the single specialists and managers who want to self-preserve in their positions. It, it's a lost cause. You're just in a fantasy if you think that'll change anything. So what you have to do is start off by just clearing the decks and basic, so less is a managerless organizational model. And so you start by eliminating virtually all managers in the organization. And then instituting a job retraining program, for example, that become developers again, uh, because then you'll have a, a lot more people that can do programming, which is good for the organization as well. Um, and in organizations where for some reason there's a, a need for some number of managers, like for example, um, a lot of companies have a policy that you have to report to some line manager, not that we recommend it, but then for a less adoption we normally recommend a ratio of 100 to 1. So 100 developers, uh, one line manager. And in less adoptions uh, we flip the system so that the line manager is chosen by the workers and can be fired by the developers. So if that one overhead line manager for 100 people is doing something useful, then the product developers would essentially fire her or him or deselect them. And when you put those two elements in place, eliminating almost all manager positions, mm -hmm. and then you move in the rare case that there's any left, where they're essentially selected or deselected by the teams, virtually all of these problems go away. Also, I'll mention that unless there's no projects allowed, no programs allowed at all. It's a product-centric model. So the whole concept of PMO is just completely eliminated, just dissolved. Oh, all right. How do you deal with managers that are not technical skilled? So well, now you have all these coaching people, managers that have no clue on coding, development, or so on. It's They're so basically resource managers. Yeah. I've been coaching people to become programmers for 40 years, and it's my experience that anyone with an IQ of 100, uh, usually with about 12 months of education, can start to become a programmer. Mm -hmm. um, although I prefer properly educated computer scientists, uh, the core of what you can learn can be in about 12 months. So a job, typical job retraining programming program is then, for example, uh, just specialized programming courses and kind of programming boot camps for these people, and then bringing them into the feature team when they're kind of past the baby step. And then we, in less adoptions, we often do a lot of mob programming, and in working that way, these people uh, start to be able to fit in and contribute. So, how do you find these organizations? They, they're kind of some like unicorns. If one walked in the room, I think we'd all identify them pretty easily, but where do we go look for them? Um, well, there's <laughs> so tag few the in the world that uh, I don't know how you would find them. Um, look, for, look for organizations where there's an existential crisis, okay. um, as a rule of thumb. Okay, cool. So, insurance. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. insurance. Well, I mean, the crisis may be changed. There's in that slim chance that they actually make the right change. Yeah, a lot of those. <laughs> that's better, increase your odds. But they have enough money, they'll have McKinsey. So. Yeah. <laughs> there lies the challenge. Uh, again, but I don't normally recommend looking for them. I recommend that most people get a day job, you know, work as a programmer or a doctor or something like that. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, Brandon. So you told this story of Feature F1 gone horribly wrong. Could you tell a quick story of how Feature 1 could be done differently or better? By changing structure. So unless uh, all of these groups and roles are eliminated and we reform into feature teams, where a feature team draws from all the component teams and all of the single specialties, and then people start learning secondary and tertiary skills, and then F1, which comes in at the beginning, 
F1 is given to a feature team, or more precisely, a feature team volunteers for F1. And then key point, they do everything. The analysis, the user experience investigation, all of the architecture, all of the programming, all of the integration, and all of the testing, so that there's no handoff to anybody else. And so that dramatically simplifies uh, the resolution of the problem. So you answered a couple of our questions, which was, where would you start with the structure change? And then this kind of human impact of this, I mean, how do you reconcile that? Our other question was, um, there still is this human nature of, uh, from a customer standpoint, and even from an executive standpoint, of wanting to predict the future, and you need to have confidence and some sort of system for predicting the future that will make them confident? In, in some organizations, and a lot, it just doesn't matter. Um, companies like Facebook, they don't even talk about estimates, for example, they consider it utterly irrelevant. So uh, let's not start from the assumption that companies have to do estimates, it's usually unnecessary. So always in less, uh, we don't start by providing a drug for lung cancer, we start off by asking why do you have lung cancer and address the root cause. Like an, another example, before coming back to your uh, question, uh, portfolio management. So uh, some people ask the question, uh, it looks like Les doesn't have a story for portfolio management, which is a sign that the persons don't understand Les at all. Because the question to ask about portfolio management, the right question is, why do you have portfolio management? And they'll answer, because we have programs. So if you eliminate programs, then the need for program portfolio management goes away. Okay, so that solves one kind of portfolio management, gone. So less, we don't you know, uh, enable the dysfunction, we solve the root cause by eliminating the need. Or another kind of portfolio management is product portfolio management. Why do you have product portfolio management? Because we've got lots of products. Why do you have lots of products? Uh, because they're narrowly defined. Now in less, uh, we define products very broadly. So for example, in an entire bank, there's like one, maybe two products in a bank. And once you discover that in almost every company, no matter how large, there's one, two, maybe three products, then the whole need for product portfolio management disappears because you've defined broad product definitions. So uh, winding this back to the estimation question, instead of starting off with how do you enable the dysfunction of doing estimates, we really want to ask the question, really? Is it truly necessary? Because 99 times out of 100, it's not. And there's just deep dysfunctions behind it. But I'll give you a counterexample where it's truly necessary, which is like in the case of, the, of a car. So if you're in the car business, um, you have to make a new manufacturing plant and you have to set up robots and buy all kinds of specialist equipment in order to manufacture the cars. And just making that plant is a multi-billion euro investment. And it's going to be, and you've got to set up a whole worldwide uh, service chain and marketing for the car. So the point is, you better be ready for what's called start of production, September 1st, 2021. And if you're not ready by that date, you're fucked. So this is a time where the estimation for the future isn't artificial. It has a true, intrinsic, real need. So I'm distinguishing between real need for estimates and prediction versus fake ones. And in that case, where there's actually an intrinsic need for estimation, then I'd like to bring out all of the skillful means that we know. So in my world, I'll do a combination of wideband Delphi and Monte Carlo simulation. 
which are two powerful techniques to improve estimates. I don't know if you're familiar with those two techniques. Mm -hmm. So that's how I normally approach estimates when they need to be done. Yeah, let's take a follow-up then. Yeah, um, maybe the way I phrased it, I was a little more interested in less estimates inside the company and more, in your case, like getting the funding to build a plan. Like if your job of your company is to sell other people this product that will come, mm -hmm. this, um, can you speak to that a little bit? Like the, I think you had an S, you had S for speculation. Like in some businesses, you're actually selling that speculation. That makes sense. Oh, uh, yeah, but so that's, that's rarely in large scale cases. That's more, much more likely in the startup case. The world of large scale is like the world of telecommunications equipment, cars, planes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so the scenario that you describe, although theoretically possible, doesn't usually come up. Well, there's mention on the bank that have only few products. Can you say what those two, because there are large companies like General Electric or Costco or so that have multiple products. Yeah. I just want to understand that definition. Yeah, so first of all, I'm talking about hardware software products. I'm not talking about... Um, Corporations. I'm, well, no, I'm just, let me define my term by product. I don't mean a financial product like a mortgage. I mean uh, hardware software products, what less is for. So in a bank, uh, <laughs> let's say it's a retail bank, um, how many software products does a retail bank have? Probably one, we might call it accounts. Now if you think about it, of course there's the depository side of accounts, but loans, everything about loans is just an account with a negative rather than a plus. And then uh, it's all just variations of the same thing. I worked a lot in banking. So what most banks think they have in terms of software, they might think they've got 300, 3,000 software products. Uh, but from the point of view of less, they just have one big product. And that's winding that back to therefore there's no need for portfolio management once you go to broad product definitions. Yeah, but I was going back to the General Electric or at Costco, they have like Costco Fuel, they have ancillary business, they have uh, multiple areas like pharmacy, generally mm -hmm. that each of those have different systems. Yeah, and then those are those products? Those, are, those would be truly separate products. Like for example, a product to control uh, MRI devices is truly a different product than a product for pharmacare, for example. So one aspect that we haven't talked about it at all, um, you know, you mentioned how uh, the organizational structure breeds culture and, you know, this lovely spiel over here. Yeah. It also breeds system architecture, right? You can look at an organization and usually the systems architecture somehow mimics the organizational structure. Of course, it's a really bad idea. and That's what Conway well, warned about. But, I mean, that's just a fact of life, right? No, it just absolutely doesn't have to be. And, and it, yeah, that's not my question. Okay. Before you answer. Okay. <laughs> so, so how, if you have a, a given architecture, systems architecture in a company. A lot of the shops around here have SAP implementations, that huge service area. Mm -hmm. How do you tackle that with one, two, three, four, five feature teams in, in your model? How do you Is bring an organization like that into SAP? I just want to disentangle the questions there, because the one thing you were asking about was architecture, and then the other was an SAP adoption. Do you want me to take the SAP one first? I'm not going to an SAP adoption, okay? So I'm sorry, I'm native German. Maybe I'm not expressing myself here correctly, okay? I'm talking about a complex system architecture that may involve four or five different systems, SAP being one of them, multiple homegrown systems supporting it surrounding that. Okay. Today they're supported by 
platform teams, horizontal teams. Component how, teams. How do you pivot? Yeah. Yes. How do you pivot this organization to a feature-based team model so without you know having 100 people feature teams? Sure. So first of all, um, every feature team, like in Scrum, is seven, eight, nine people. Point to note. Um, the second is is that it, an interesting question is how many different components you have to touch in order to do something end to end. If it's less than nine, then problem solved. Because if there were previously nine component teams and you reformed them into feature teams with people from each of the nine components, problem solved. So the problem then becomes especially when it's more than nine components. Mm -hmm. So then there's a couple of uh, solutions. One is uh, there might be an approach that we need called less huge. So there's two frameworks on less. The smaller framework, which is for around 50 people, and then the other framework called less huge, which scales up to thousands of people. And in less huge, we divide the requirements, not architecturally, we divide the requirements into large grained areas uh, that are relevant from a customer perspective. For example, uh, one large area might be CRM. Another large area might be inventory. Now these are not architectural slicings, these are requirement slicing. But if you now have, for example, eight teams in CRM, or eight teams in inventory, there's a good chance that the span of components that they have to work across is less than the worst case if you didn't divide that way. So dividing into requirement areas correlates with a reduction in the span of components that the teams in that requirement area have to learn about, and that often ameliorates the problem. And then if there's still cases where um, you need to actually still you're in a case where you have to learn more, then what will typically happen is a technique called a traveler, where someone from, say, another team who knows the component that we know nothing about will join the team for the sprint and through a mob programming approach, when we're having to work on that component for which they know a lot, they'll, through mob programming, work with this team and start to educate this team on that. The techniques like that, it usually resolves the problem. model for what less looks like because the board shows what it does not look like. Do you I have do. one that shows what it looks like? No. Yep. <laughs> so how do we <laughs> get a copy of that? If you just uh, go to less.works, it's easy to see. And do you have any reference accounts that are, that are doing that? It sounds like there really aren't any. Reference accounts? Oh, like uh, somebody who's actually doing that. Oh, yeah. So for example, if you go to less.works, there's the case studies page. Okay. Uh, you can go there. But certainly the one that's fresh into my mind is BMW. But there's all kinds of uh, less adoptions over the, around the world for the small number of companies that actually are interested in deep change. Um, so it's not like that rare. Uh, I should say it's more, much more popular in Europe than in uh, the United States. And that's perhaps because, um, uh, well, I've worked there for many years. The food's better, um, <laughs> on average. And um, I'm not sure why else why. Maybe the quality of management is a little bit better there on average, but I hesitate to say that. What's that? People there may be less specialized. Yeah, I'm not sure. I hesitate to really pin it down. Their jobs are protected. Yeah. Could you talk about BMW structure? How did this happen in such a large company? It's very much just a typical less huge adoption. So when you come to learn about less huge, the BMW autonomous driving product is uh, organized just like that. Um, so nothing special to say. Less, less is not customized. 
So we don't change the change, the organization changes to the standard model of less. Do an end of uh, end of talk bad joke, and then we'll do the uh, <laughs> then we'll do the emails. Um, do you have a trying for this, or is this for better? Trying to decide how low I'm going to go here. <laughs> Let me see. There's no basement here. <laughs> um, a programmer walks into a bar, goes up to the bartender, and orders a triple shot of whiskey, and then sees on the stool beside him a little frog. And he's drinking, and he looks at the frog, and then the frog looks at him and goes, Help! I'm a beautiful princess, and I've been turned into an ugly frog by an evil witch. And if you kiss me, I'll turn back into a beautiful princess and be your girlfriend. Oh, says the programmer. So he picks up the little frog, puts it in his pocket, goes home, takes the frog out, puts it on the kitchen table, has a beer, half an hour just looking at the frog, kind of happy. After half an hour, the little frog princess gets a bit impatient and says, Why don't you kiss me? I'll turn into a beautiful princess and be your girlfriend. And the programmer goes, well, I've been thinking about it. I know a lot of guys that have girlfriends. I don't know anybody with a talking frog. <laughs> <laughs> Agile Grande teaches you systems thinking through dramatic storytelling, such as Carter takes a job to improve a logistics company's adaptability, but efforts to scale agile practices are being blocked by Mr. Chernesky, a vice president who's organized the company into siloed pigeonholes in order to secretly make millions with a dark web shipping service. Carter's life is in danger, he goes underground, and a spy agency hunts for him. When Carter uses systems thinking, systems modeling, and organizational change to save his company and his life, you get to learn how to apply that to your organization as well. Get your free copy of Agile Grande at leanpub.com. This is the last episode of the Craig Larman's Less series. The series started with episode 56. Go online and visit the show archive to find the rest. If you're interested in learning more about large-scale Scrum, also known as Less, Agile Thoughts episodes 50 through 55 has a series with Less's other founder, Boss Fodi. In addition to that, Les was also represented by a panelist during the Agile Scaling Framework Fight Night series, which ran from episodes 35 through 42. As always, you can find these episodes and more by searching the internet for, and I quote, Agile Thoughts Show Archive. <laughs>